America's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. What is happening, my friend? As always, this is your host, Brad Wilson, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com. And today, my guest is three-time WSOP bracelet winner, poker coach, and author of The Game Plan, Matt Matros. Matt has racked up over $2.5 million in live tournament caches over his almost two-decade-long career. Some highlights include the aforementioned triple WSOP bracelets in 1500 six-max, Limit Hold'em, and Mixed Hold'em Tourneys, finishing third at the WPT Championship for over 700k, and three more WSOP final tables. This conversation was a real joy for me. It brought back many fond memories of a time in my life when making a WPT final table was the end-all be-all, and it was a mortal sin to miss an episode of the World Poker Tour not only because it was exciting, but also because it was one of the few real sources of high-level poker strategy anyone had access to. You'll hear stories about Matt's good friend, the late, great Gavin Smith, the only time Matt forgot what hand he had in his entire poker career, and one pivotal ace-queen Matt wishes he had back. In our conversation, you'll also learn how Matt ended up at the 25k WPT Championship Final Table, a greatness bomb on how MTT players misunderstand ICM, why low expectations can be a poker superpower, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I bring to you three-time WSOP bracelet winner, Matt Matros. Matt, welcome to the show. How are you doing, sir? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm hot. My AC is out and it's approximately 3,000 degrees outside. So this is going to be a very sweaty interview for me. It's not a good time to be without AC pretty much anywhere in the country, but especially not, or I assume you're in Vegas? No, no, no. I'm in Atlanta, but it's still very hot and very humid. Yeah, that sounds horrible. (laughs) (laughs) It's not fun, but it's only for a couple of days till we get the AC fixed. But I want to start out this show by firstly asking you about the story of how you got involved playing cards. What did that look like? Sure. Well, I came from a card playing family. My dad, my great aunt, and lots of other relatives just love to play any kind of card game. So I was introduced to card games at a very, very early age. Poker specifically, I was probably, I don't know, junior high when I first learned the rules, maybe a little younger. What card games did y'all play? Oh, when, when I was a kid, we played a lot of 500 rummy. We played... Um, a game my grandfather knew called Casino. Um, my great aunt taught us a game called Dirty Dog, which my brother and I were just trying to Google the rules to, but no one ever heard of it. So I think um, my aunt Julie had made it up. Um, <laughs> and then she also made up a game called Quack Quack, I think, which was just, maybe that was when we knew the rules too. One of them is just Uno with a regular deck of cards. And then one of them is a game that she just made up. Um, but yeah, a lot of 500 Rummy and Casino and um, eventually poker as well quack quack it's uh paul mcgrill it's a yes. strange coincidence rest in peace paul mcgrill yes he um he loved to play those those two deuces yeah um 
so you grew up playing cards. I did as well. A lot of rummy, a lot of cards. I remember playing seven card stud with like penny ante with my grandparents growing up and just always loved the game, the games and played a lot of spades in high school, which segued into my poker career. But uh, tell me about discovering poker. How old were you again? And what was that like? Um, I don't remember exactly when I learned the rules. Probably I was around 10 or 11 or 12, but I really started playing in high school. I, I, I'm most, there was, there was a time when pretty much every weekend my buddies and I had a standing night where we would go to somebody's house and play cards, play poker late into the night. And the, the betting aspect and the probability aspect really appealed to me at a young age and the people aspect too. It just, from a strategy standpoint, it seems so different from the other, all the, every other card game I'd ever played. And I was pretty well hooked. But having said that, I didn't take the game seriously until I was old enough to play in the casino. I, when, I, when I got to college, I kind of forgot about poker for a few years until I turned 21. So while I played in high school, it wasn't any kind of training. It was just a familiarity with kind of the rules and the betting mechanisms, but I wasn't actually improving in any real sense. And I wasn't, I wasn't even remotely close to a good player. I was just a home game player who enjoyed it. I didn't start taking it seriously I read, until I read my first book on poker, which was my senior year of college. Tell me, what year was that? When... My senior year of college, my, I, read my, I read my first poker book in 1998. So it was okay, before, so you... before Moneymaker by a few years, and poker was still not in the mainstream at all at that point. Yeah, so you and your friends must have been playing a lot of different games, probably not a lot of No Limit Texas Hold'em back then. No, in fact, in high school, we didn't play Hold'em at all. We, the, the card games we played were draw stud and then you know crazy games like baseball or whatever with million wild cards or um, games that weren't even really poker a game called gut which was kind of like poker but you got dealt three cards or guts people i think people played that still kind of played in some home games but yeah the, all the kind of wild card and the zany home game variations the different stud variations but there were we had never heard of flop games or community card games and actually, the first time I saw poker on TV, I think I was in high school, and I was like, what is it? it was, and of course, it was Texas Hold'em. And I was like, what is this game they're playing? And it took me like 15 minutes to figure out that the cards I was seeing somehow belonged to everyone. And then I was like, I don't understand this. And I turned it off. Um, <laughs> so immediately yeah, wasn't, hooked. <laughs> yes. And so, but, but then when my, my father actually was introduced to Texas Hold'em around the time I turned 21, coincidentally, and he he taught me and actually all of my college buddies, the rules, my senior year of college. And I was like, Oh, this is a really cool form of poker. And that's when I read my first book on it. And that's, that's when I started taking poker seriously. Texas Hold'em is the first game that I ever studied as if I were trying to get better at it. The other games, when I was in high school, I, I got annoyed because I lost so much. And I tried to think about ways to get better. And I did some basic things like, you know, fold sometimes on the first betting round, which was like <laughs> bare minimum, but that's the only thing I can, I really came up with that. But but then but once I once I read a book, I was like, oh, OK, I I'm starting to understand all the possibilities that are in this game and how deep the strategy actually goes. And what I was doing in high school wasn't really even playing. It was just moving, moving chips around, basically. Yeah, you could have Tanya Harding to your friends out in the parking <laughs> lot after the game. <laughs> yes, that was a good reference at the time because that was going on right when we were playing, probably. I'm sure that I'm sure it was. It was a real big deal. Why did you decide to write a book? in your final year of college on specifically, was it on No Limit Hold'em, your first book? Um, my first book, I wrote a few years out of college, actually. And it was um, not specifically on any form of poker. It was more a narrative. It was what they call in the industry a how-to slash memoir. It was, I was trying to teach 
various poker games, just how to get better at poker through the story of how I learned how to play poker, my own journey through the through becoming a home game player to becoming someone who could play a tournament and actually cash and knew what they were doing. It wasn't really supposed to be this guide to how to get great at poker, but between the time I wrote the book and the time it came out, I made a WPT final table and of course tried to promote the book when I was on there. And so I think there was some expectation at the time that it was going to be Matt Matrix's Secrets of Poker. But really the, the idea behind the book was always, here's this guy who didn't really know how to play poker. Here's a story of how he learned and you can meet a bunch of people and have the experiences with him along the way. It was a really fun book to write. I wrote it in my early 20, early to mid 20s. And um, the reason to answer, to give a roundabout answer to your question, the reason I wanted to write it is that I was always a writer first, at least back then, and a poker player second. I was in, I had been in grad school for a fiction writing program and I took writing quite seriously and poker had been a hobby. And so it was my way to combine those two things. It was only kind of after the writing of the book that poker started taking on a bigger role and eventually for a long time anyway, passing writing, although they've, they've always, they're always kind of like one and one a for me. Yeah. Interconnected pretty fortunate for multiple reasons, hitting that WPT final table at the same time, you know, you're releasing your book. What did, how, how did you get there? What's the story behind getting to your first WPT final table? Uh, like, how did you get a 10K buy-in? Was it a satellite? Like, how did that happen? Right. Well, first of all, it was a 25K buy-in. So it was oh. even more ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. uh, I did not have 25K to my name at that time. So I was on spring break for my graduate writing program. And I played an online $100 super satellite. And the prize from the super satellite, if you want to see, was ticket to Vegas and buy-ins to two different super satellites to the 25K. So you got a ticket to Vegas and you got two entries for 2,500 bucks each. I guess it was 2,600 with the juice where one of those, one of those things were one in 10 people win the seat to the big tournament. So I won the super satellite line. I got to, got to Vegas in my first shot at the $2,600 super satellite. I got a seat. And so I was able to not play the second one and just pocket the 2,600 in cash, which already felt like a good win to me. I was like, yes, I've gotten $2,600 out of this hundred dollar investment. I was already kind of satisfied with that. Yeah. And then, and then to play the, the main event and go on to come in third, it's, it's really just insanely unlikely and insanely lucky. And it's set me up for my entire life. And to think that that's because of what cards were randomly turned over in various turns and rivers. And that tournament has led to, being comfortable basically from then on it's, it's kind of crazy to think about what was the feeling that like what were you feeling as you were playing this 25k event which i have to imagine is probably you know hundreds of times bigger than the biggest tournament you had ever played and then to start having success and like oh you know i can actually see the finish line could you tell me what you were feeling and thinking going through that yeah, basically, I was overwhelmed by the feelings and just trying to think, keep my the head about me as much as possible. And if, if you read my first book, you'll know that I didn't totally succeed in the end. I uh, didn't quite get to the title, partially because I found myself playing, you know, for a million dollar difference, but well, $700,000 difference between third and second and $1.4 million difference between second and first. And my brain basically just stopped working. But <laughs> yeah. up, and, up until that point, I was really just trying to stay in it as much as I could because I was petrified that, that I was going to be worried about how much money we were playing for. And I wasn't going to play 
good poker as a result. And so if anything, I went in the opposite direction and I played like maybe even more aggressively than I should have. I just did not want to be the guy who was intimidated by the stakes and ended up playing poorly and not realizing as much value as I should. So I was doing things like check raising a flop with two nines, no set and like getting three bet and then shoving over the three bet. And it worked because people are like, this guy must have the nuts. Like there, there's, there's, and uh, it was, the hand actually was against Joe Cassidy. And I, and I told Joe the hand later and he was like, oh, I definitely folded better hand than that. There's no way I thought you had two nines there. Um, and, but I, I wasn't even like, even thinking about, well, I hope I can get Joe Cassidy to fold a better hand. All I was thinking was if I check raise Joe Cassidy with a decent hand, I am not going to fold to him if he comes back to me. Cause I know these guys are aggressive. I know they're going to want to pick on me. And this is not necessarily the best way to go about a poker tournament, but it's not the worst way either. And so that, what I was feeling and thinking was mostly don't be intimidated. If you are making an aggressive play, make sure that you are defending it often enough. So don't check raise and fold 90% of the time to three better or whatever. And so that's kind of how I, my, that's how I was going about it the whole time. It was make sure that they are not taking advantage of you. And the result of that was me playing really, really aggressively, which worked pretty well for a long time until it didn't. But as I said, there were other reasons it stopped working in the end, but it was, it, it was, it was pretty overwhelming. Um, and I'm happy that I was able to keep it together as much as I did, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, that sort of ultra aggression strategy works until it doesn't yeah, for sure. <laughs> until, until the one time that it doesn't. However, it's pretty interesting thinking about it in terms of game theory, like afterwards where it's like, okay, are they bet, were they bet three betting like top set and the nutted hands in their range? Maybe they're bet three betting some more marginal hands that you just naturally had fold equity against because they, they didn't have the hands that they needed to call with at the top of their range which obviously not something that you're thinking about in the moment, but it's a strategy that I can imagine could work pretty well if people are capable of making really big folds. Yeah, it's funny you say that because that nines hand, they were an overpair. And when I told this hand to people later, they were like, oh, Joe probably had two jacks. And when I told Joe the hand later, he said, oh, I probably had a bigger overpair than yours, which is kind of funny looking at the hand 15 years later because... It looks silly, right? Yeah, no, no, one, no one plays those hands that way anymore. Yeah. But back then, that was kind of like the old school conventional wisdom was you keep raising to find out where you're at. And so the biggish overpair was worth the next raise after you got raised in the flop. And then if you get shoved down, you found out that you were beat and you folded. Um, of course, it's not how we play poker now. We know that that's not really a very good way to play poker. Um, but yes, the, the strategy that I had adopted was actually quite good at the time against those types of players. So it wasn't like just totally crazy or anything. And I... Even going in, I mean, I may not have been able to articulate it as well back then when we didn't really talk as explicitly about um, which hands do better as bluff catchers and which hands do better that do better as three bet folds. Like that, that kind of language hadn't really made it its way into the poker discourse. It's not in the mainstream discourse yet in 2004. But I think unconsciously, I ha- I kind of had the idea like, well, if he puts even more money, I get him to fold so much the better for me. And so, and that was kind of how a lot of um, this went. There was another hand in that tournament where I had three bet Howard Lederer pre-flop, who at the time was considered like the world's greatest Nolan Holden player. And he was really good. No, I'm not taking anything away from Howard. I three bet Howard and he with two sevens and he called me and the flop came pretty innocuously. I don't remember the exact flop, but 
I believe sevens were actually an overpair. I think it was like some kind of like five, four deuce flower. Maybe, maybe it wasn't an overpair. Maybe it was like eight, four deuce, something like that. Yeah. Eight, four deuce or like 10, three deuce. It was something where sevens were like still a pretty good hand. And Howard check called all in with two sixes. And there were people at the table at the time who were like, how could he go broke that way? Everyone knows you're supposed to raise and re-raise until you find out your beat. But Howard had decided I was playing too aggressive and decided to check call trapping with these two sixes on reasonable boards, which like really wasn't a crazy plan against what I was doing. It, he looked really dumb when he ran into two sevens. And there were people at the table were like, Howard played that hand the only way he could go broke, which is how people thought at that time. It was like, that's the only way you're going to go broke is by calling it off here. You could lose to overcards or whatever. But Howard was a little bit ahead of his time in that he thought the best way to get value out of his hand was not necessarily to make me fold pre-flop, which he was right that I wasn't going to actually, but to like wait for a decent flop and then have me bluff off his chips. Maybe it wasn't the best plan. I don't know. But, but the point is that that was like a radical way to think about it back then. Revolutionary, people, yeah. yeah people, people weren't trying to check, trying to induce people to bluff and call. That was like how I made a lot of my money early on. I was like, I'm going to induce bluffs. No one else is doing it. Yeah. Uh, everyone else was just like raising until they found out they were beaten and folding. And so- it was a good time to be a poker player, put it that way. That's a lot. That's something that I have to talk about a lot when doing like hand history reviews. People who are newer to the game, it's like sometimes checking for value is the best thing you can do. And Absolutely. you check call to maximize your value. This notion that betting is the only way to get value is very antiquated. And I think for lots of players, it just gets ingrained in their psyche. That's like, I need to bet. I need to bet. I need to bet. And it's like, no, like there's multiple decisions on this tree. And sometimes just check calling, getting value from all the hands that won't put any money in. If you bet is the absolute best thing that you can do. Yeah, for sure. Especially, and especially when players are starting out and they have to learn that aggression is often a smart play, then learning the times when not to be aggressive that's that's the skill that really takes a long time to get right because anybody can bet every time and probably 70 80 percent of the time that'll be the right thing to do but figuring out when it's not the right thing to do is a big part of where the skill in this game comes from and that really takes a lot of practice absolutely in that tournament 25k so that's probably the five diamonds right was it the five diamonds it was the wpt championship at the bellagio i don't I think it was, I don't remember if it was called five times or not, but it was WPT championship at the Bellagio. Was that Martin, 2004. Martin Dick yes, and if? That's, that's the, the See, WPT memory coming back, <laughs> Martin Dick and if. I don't even know who got second, but I remember Hassan Martin Dick Hassan Habib. If. Hassan Habib. I remember Martin Kniff had like 10,000 stacks of 20 chips in front of him. It was like the most absurd <laughs> collection of uh, chips in that tournament that I maybe I've ever seen. It was so many chips. Yeah, it was a funny situation at the final table, at the final six specifically, because it was Martin and Hassan. Martin was a high-stakes sports gambler and poker player. Hassan was a high-stakes poker player. And then it was me and this other young guy named Ricky Grijalva, neither of us who played for high stakes. We were just kind of like online and somewhat live grinders. But we this was like crazy territory for us in terms of the money. Steve Brecker, who really nice guy, been a really strong poker player in the online Arge community for years and years and years, but also playing for what was surely a lot of money for him. And then my very, very good friend somehow, Russell Rosenblum. Um, what do you mean? Who, you were friends before? Yes. Wow. That before. is crazy. Yeah. And su- such good friends. In fact, that Russell made the world series of poker main event final table in 2002. 
and I was sweating him the night before from my apartment in Washington, D.C. And when play wrapped for the night, I booked a ticket to fly to Vegas on the red eye to see him play the final table uh, the next day. That's how tight we were. Um, and so, yes, we ended up at the, <laughs> at the final six of the WPT championship, which was just absolutely wild. Now, the money didn't mean very much to Russell, uh, I happen to know, but the situation, the, 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 prestige. the poker prestige of the event, yes, absolutely, was hugely important to him. And as a result, there was a strange dynamic where Hassan and Martin really weren't that nervous. Like for them, it was kind of like another day at the office playing poker for big money. The other four of us were scared out of our minds. And so um, unsurprisingly, Hassan and Martin came in second. And like I said, given this situation, I'm pretty happy to come in third place, to be honest. But uh, yes, Martin, very actually very nice guy and very strong player too. I What happened to him? I haven't heard anything about Martin DeCaniff in years. I don't know. Does he still play cards? A little, I think. He, I think he mostly focused on his sports betting business. I know he, he runs um, – I don't know how much is public knowledge and how much is not, but I – I think he's been pretty um, interested in learning about the advantages that you can find in sports betting and soccer and other sports. And he's gotten pretty serious into it. And, and he, of course he lives a European. So none of this stuff is remotely illegal there. It's all like yeah. very, very legal. Uh, so I, probably I could say more about it's not my place. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's fine. But, but basically he's, he's a very serious sports better and that's what he mostly focuses on. I think he still plays some cards too. But uh, I'm, I'm I'm pretty sure he's doing just fine. But it's not like we're in touch. I haven't I haven't spoken to Martin probably since we ran into each other at Vegas at some random World Series. I don't remember how long ago. I I want to say like six or seven years ago. I probably saw him and said hi. But uh, I have nothing but fond memories from Martin. And he, even though he's the one who busted me, I really don't have any ill will towards him. I mean, I busted myself really. So um, and Martin was nothing but a gentleman the entire time. So it, I I have. When, when we see each other, we still laugh and smile and it's, we still have good, obviously he has good memories of it, but I, I do. <laughs> well, I would say, you know, how it appeared, you know, the perception versus reality is probably a little different at the time for Martin and Hassan too, that, you know, your perceptions that it's like another day at the office, but to remember that experience, you know, decades later shows that it was quite meaningful. I'm sure to both of them the opportunity to take down that tournament, the prestige WPT championship. A lot of those guys, I think back in the, back in the day, it's like a perfect storm of, you know, like Antonio Esfandiari, Gus Hansen, the guys that won a bunch of tournaments around that time when poker was booming was, it was just so massive for their career. It made them so many millions of dollars on top of the actual winnings that, you know, that was just a big part of it back then. And Yeah pretty memorable experience i'd imagine yeah absolutely and in fact i mean if i had won that thing and not come in third I mean, not only obviously I would have won a lot more in the tournament itself but it really the the non the stuff away from the table really would have taken off too as it was i was on like three or four different tv shows just for coming in third like grad student in writing wins seven hundred thousand in poker tournament this was like a crazy story in 2004 so i was on like today in new york I was on some CNBC show. I was on local television. How did that feel <laughs> going on TV? getting Very interviewed. strange, but it, I mean, it wasn't so bad. I was kind of, I was somewhat used to doing media at that point. Um, and I, I was the first, I said the very first time I was on camera, I, I was slightly nervous, but I got, I got used to it fairly quickly because I, after all, I just been on camera playing for a ton of money. Being on camera, talking to some news person is not nearly. Stakes are much lower. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> 
the people at Party Poker, I since, since I had won through a Party Poker satellite, they were like coordinating a lot of these media appearances. They like, I don't know what I had signed away by, you know, winning a satellite to get into the WPT main event, but I was definitely wearing a goofy looking 2004 Party <laughs> Poker hat all the way up until the final table. And Party Poker, even though I'd only come in third, they were looking to do kind of a longer term deal with me. And, and my representatives there said, they were trying to get me on Letterman. And the reason it didn't happen is that I came in third instead of first. But it was pretty clear that if I had actually won this thing, it would have been 10 times crazier, not just about because of the money, but because of the stuff that would have happened afterwards. So it's really funny how like just a couple of changes, you just change the cards very slightly. As crazy as it was, it would have been even crazier. Yeah. And it's like, there, it, there's so many of these factors and it's like at the time, I mean, clearly the skill element is there, but typically at the depths of these final tables, like, you know, anything can happen. Like you can just run good and it doesn't matter what Martin does. You're just going to run all over him through just sheer good variance. So like, yeah, it's interesting. And then, but just to get there, really, you know, that's just a super high variance, look, tiny percentage thing to even be at the final table. So yeah, it's a, it's a great story and it's a good way to kick off your poker career. I would say. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as it was, I was probably going to be like an adjunct writing professor, grinding 1530 Lemon Hold'em on the side and like being the stereotypical, you know, grind it out in his leather ass like guy from <laughs> Rounders. Yeah. Yes, exactly, Kanish. But instead, I had this bankroll to basically play whatever game I want. Now, I didn't, I only moved up one level because I wouldn't want to be the guy who like found money and jumped into the 1,000, 2,000 game or whatever and immediately lost it all. We, call, it, it, we call that Jamie Golding it. Right, exactly. <laughs> And so, like, instead of playing 1530, I played 3060 or whatever. And I'm talking about limit, not even, like, 3060 blinds with a big bet game. Yeah, most um, people don't know that, like, no-limit cash games were not really a thing in 2004. It was all, like, the biggest game on Party Poker was, um, I believe it was, was it 3060 limit? I think it was 3060 limit on 3060 limit poker. was the amazing game on Party where they had a trillion tables going. And the games were so good, oh, my Lord, in, that, in those days. Um, it was only after Moneymaker won in 2003 that no limit started catching on and that all the tournaments started becoming no limit really. And the and cash game started becoming no limit as well. But yeah, I mean, limit was still what was played really at the cash level. And even in a lot of tournaments too, I mean, there were way more limit events, not just in the world series of poker, but at other tour stops back then, like you for really sure. won't find that anymore. But yeah. I, um, it just wasn't spread as frequently. Like, when I first started playing on uh, Casino Boat to Nowhere 2004, there was no no limit cash. It was mm-hmm. 510 limit and 1020 limit. My friend won a bracelet at some stop in a 1K limit event because that was what was being spread at the time. I, like It took probably five months into 2005 before I played in my first no limit cash game, before they decided to spread it on the boat. So it was really just a, a different world. And like party poker had no limit kind of, but they, it was like 50 big blinds and very small stakes. It was a, it was just a different time. Like the, the grinders, the pros typically played like 1530 limit and the 3060 limit game. Yeah. But weirdly the tournaments were still largely, even then were largely yeah, they no were. limit. So that's where people were learning how to play no limit was in the tournament setting, which it, it's kind of strange because it's you you your fundamentals can get a little messed up and a lot of and a lot of people a lot of the great no limit hold tournament players at that time were notoriously terrible no limit cash players because they only knew how to like pick on short stacks which isn't really a thing in cash games although it's hugely important in tournaments and so 
that skill got them pretty far in tournaments, but they they had no real fundamental knowledge of like hand values or. You know, I'm going to say something a little yeah, controversial. Sure. I'm like tournament players transitioning to cash even today tend to struggle. It, it's very hard. They tend to what I see happen with tournament players that transition to cash is they try to make it like a pre-flop game. They're more hesitant to like call and see a flop. And so they'll like five, start five bet ripping like ace five suited or some hands that you just really should not be to try to make it like a one, you know, one, uh, a one street game because that's what they're familiar with. Right. They want the, the stacks to be shallow so that the decision tree is minimized and we don't really have to start constructing turn ranges, if that makes sense. It definitely makes sense. And I, and I think that's, you're absolutely right that it, people who are, Strictly tournament players often struggle to make the transition. What I think is also true, and I don't hear discussed as much, is that it's not as easy as you think to go from a cash game setting to a tournament context either. A lot of cash game players think, well, I know all the fundamentals of no limit hold them. It's the same game. I'm just going to play a tournament. But if you've never played with 25 blinds, with 15 blinds, with 40 blinds, if you're always playing a cash game where you're super deep, you're really not going to know what to do. It's, there's a lot of nuance to playing with those medium and shorter stacks and not only that you haven't faced opponents who handle those stack sizes in various ways and you don't know like the tendencies of people with 20 blinds or what their ranges are even going to look like when they open or three bet or call and so it's not as easy to make that transition either i do think it's probably easier to go from cash tournament than the other way around but there there's work involved in both and i think um anyone who's looking to transition would do well to go into it with an open mind and but at least try to figure out the, the things they, they don't know they need to work on that will surely pro, pro, uh, crop up. Absolutely. I just had Kevin Rabichow on the show, interviewed him a couple of days ago, and he said pretty much verbatim the same thing, that going from a cash to tournament setting, it's going to take work. You know, Nowadays, you can buy a course that for a few thousand dollars that can kind of prepare you better over a few months to become like a quote unquote acceptable tournament player making the transition, but it'll still take years um, refining the strategies to really, you know, be able to compete at a very high level in a tournament setting. So yeah, I think that's pretty spot on Uh, two extremely smart people in a row have told it to me. So I uh, (laughs) it's sinking in. (laughs) I'm going to trust y'all. Yeah, I mean, to get to a very high level, anything it's it's it takes work. And even if you're really good at something that's related, to, if it's if different discipline, which cash games tournaments are, you've got to put in the time. Yep, there's no you know there's no uh, shortcut besides winning a satellite and getting third at <laughs> your first. <laughs> well, uh... there's definitely a shortcut to winning. Like you can just get lucky and win. That can happen for sure. Yeah. But to becoming a high top level player, which we're talking about, that's something else entirely. Exactly, which is. You know, it's always been kind of funny to me that, like, your life changed overnight. You know, you won all this money. You had a chance at getting first and being on Letterman. But, like, it wasn't like your skill at poker dramatically increased from, like, a week before, right? There was still, like, so much learning and and growth and time and energy that, you know, I'm sure you put into your career. And luckily, it seemed, you know, you're a smart dude. So you didn't just start playing the 10Ks right out of the gate, I'm sure, right? Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I think there were, there were two things uh, at work. One is that um, because no limit holding tournaments were such a kind of a new thing to be popular and not really well understood, 
if you took some time like thinking about the game on your own and studying some game theory ideas and just like um, approaching approaching Illumin Hold'em tournaments with openness and, and, and real skepticism about the conventional wisdom, you had a chance to actually be really good really quickly, which is not true now, but it, it was true then. So one thing that was true was that, you know, when I was like running up huge stacks in the $100 tournament I had played a few weeks before or in the online tournament and I had played the night before I played uh, the 25K, that was more significant then than you might think because the skill difference between like the hundred dollar tournament and the 25 K while there was a skill difference, it wasn't as big as you would think. Cause really no one was that good. So that, that was one aspect. And of course the other aspect is what you were getting at, which is that I ran insanely good. And so I didn't, I didn't become the third best poker player in the world overnight by any means, but I wasn't as far down. I wasn't like the 20,000th best player going into tournament. Right. Even though sure. Might have, I might've been 20,000th in career earnings or whatever, but I, that wasn't right either. But the truth was somewhere in the middle. And yes, it was, I definitely realized that afterwards and, you know, continue to work on my game as much as I could. And, you know, for the most part, I still do that. Although obviously the longer you're in this game, the harder it is to, to stay motivated. But I, you know, I, yeah. I've tried. It's like, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Very right? much so, yeah. And just through like sheer aggression, you can realize an edge over guys that are just playing more passively. And like, you know, that you it, like you said, it's much easier to get close enough to the the higher level players than it is today. Today, it is a Herculean task. Um, yeah, I mean, today the top the top players are light years beyond where they were in 2004 and so the good news is you don't necessarily have to become one of them to make a to to do to do okay in poker but you're you're not going to you're not going to be able to rise through the ranks as quickly anymore but you can you can still there's still money to be made in poker i mean there's still there's still the the basic fact hasn't changed the way you the main way you make money in poker is from the weaker players the non-professionals and so that's still true and the, you know, the ratio of non-professionals to pros playing in your game is still going to be more important than how good the very best pros are. Having said that, in tournaments especially, it does help to continue to increase your skill because the way tournaments usually play out is that a lot of the fish, almost all the fish go broke somewhere either before the money or shortly into the money. And then when you get down to the last few tables, it's mostly pretty strong professionals. And at that point you really want to have a pretty good strategy in place to give yourself a real shot. Because if you don't, then your equity determined is not going to be very good because you really, you really have to threaten to actually win, not just, not just to run deep. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, a lot of what you said is, is like Pareto, right? It's, you know, 80% of your profit at the table comes from 20% of the players and that's going to be true. And then 80% of your profit in tournaments is going to come from <laughs> it's probably a worse ratio than that you know 95 percent of your winnings in tournaments comes from five percent of your tournament results so you got to perform when you have the chance to bink it for 500k or a million you, you got to give yourself the best chance possible to maximize so let's go to today what does your process look like today to regularly improve your game yeah that's a really good question i think well, just to give you some idea of where I'm at today, uh, I became a father three years ago, and that kind of upended everything about my routine and my day-to-day. Uh, and so I was kind of away from poker for a couple of years. And so at the beginning of 2019, I knew I, knew I still wasn't going to be able to play that much, but I wanted to 
to kind of engage my brain still with poker. So I decided to write a book to do something that we've kind of been talking about, which is try to improve as quickly, try to have casual players, give casual players a way to improve as quickly as possible so that they could at least have a chance against elite players. And so basically you're not going to, as we've been saying, to become a truly elite player takes a lot of work. But uh, if you have some, some sensible aggression, I would say to your game, if you're, if you're timely about, your raises, if you, if you basically, if you play a, if you play a solid tight, aggressive strategy, but not a weak, tight, aggressive, so tight, aggressive, but not folding at the first sign of resistance, you're going to have a shot. And that's kind of, I want to write a book that lays out the exact way you'd have a shot because I ran into so many poker players who really love the game, but I just watched them play these tournaments and they fold, they're, they're folding way too often and they're aggressive in the wrong places. And it seemed like relatively simple fixes. Now, when I sat down to write the book, trying to like write out a set of rules that would make casual players threats in Nolan and Holden tournaments, it was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And so engaging my brain to write out all these rules, which I eventually did, and my book is called The Game Plan, and I hope some of your listeners are interested in it because it's not just for casual players. I also include a lot of my own hands from the WSP main event as examples. And so you can see not just what the game plan would say to do, but what I actually did. Sometimes that's interesting. But anyway, engaging my brain in this kind of task of creating a rubric for just saying, follow these rules and you'll be an okay poker player was much more challenging than I expected to be. I don't know why I I naively thought it it would be easy, but just, just the process of writing the book and like forcing myself to study snapshot charts was a big part of what I had to do to, to work on what casual players are doing right and wrong and don't hold them tournaments and just thinking through like, okay, well really specifically, when is the best time to tell them to, to, that again on this in this situation and when is the time to tell them to shut down and when would they call um just kind of going back to basics in that way but still having it be complicated enough that i had to think through all the different flops turns and rivers that could run out that i think really served me well in keeping my brain invested in the game because i, I guess I, I did i played two events at the world series last summer in 2019 one was a limit, one was no limit. I cashed in both, and in the no limit, it was one of those, it was like the crazy eights or whatever with a trillion people in it. With like 100 players or I think 70 players, some, some very small number of players left, I lost a coin flip for the chip lead, and I busted. And it was like, yes, of course, I got my usual good luck on that run, but I really felt there were a lot of plays, especially with like the very short stack situations, where if I hadn't just been immersed in studying these snapshots charts and in thinking about how people that I was playing against would be playing poker, I don't know. I definitely wouldn't have made the kind of run that I did. So that was one thing I did was just to like create this problem for myself to, to stay engaged. Um, since writing the book last year, now we're in a very different place with poker in 2020 since brick and mortar poker at this time is not really a thing and definitely won't be for me for quite a while, unfortunately, until this pandemic is under control but I did just play the online events at the world series and I didn't do a ton of prep for them, but what I am doing now is kind of meticulously reviewing hand histories from them. So it's, it's really never the same thing. And I, I think the roundabout answer to your question of what works for me is that I'm not just going to do the same thing over and over again to try to improve because that's always going to get boring. So just keep finding new ways to challenge yourself, whether it's in coming up with this um, kind of, toy game problem for you to to figure out that's related to poker, like coming up with a strategy for 
for your casual players, or whether it's reviewing your own hands and considering alternative lines and running them by some, actually I'm running them by one of my students now. And most of the time, the hands I'm bringing up, which are interesting, he will, my students will either kind of miss the point of what I was trying to go after, or they're, they're not thinking about it as at a high enough level. And that's fine. That's why I'm trying to, to coach them. But every once in a while, they'll say, wait a minute, why did you do this? Couldn't you have done that? And I'll be like, oh yeah, that's an actually interesting point. I might, I might think about changing my range in this situation. So it varies, but the, the, really the, the main takeaway is stay engaged, want to improve and come up with ways like tasks for yourself to try to do it. And if you find the game interesting, if you can, you continue to find the game interesting, those, those opportunities will present themselves. Yes. Teaching, writing a book, trying, trying to do what you tried to do makes my brain explode just yes, thinking about it. Um, it because that is a thing that is so, so difficult. I'm doing the same, you know, I'm trying to come up with courses and programs for, you know, the people in my community and trying to structure it in like a linear way, creating heuristics that makes sense that aren't going to take people off track, breaking down every little piece step by step and like, looking at how they complement each other. And if you don't understand one, you're not really going to understand the other. So which one do you start with teaching first? It is so complicated and so complex um, to just give a strategy that will allow, you know, somewhat of a recreational player to be moderately successful. Like it is an extremely difficult task. And what you're going to do, you'll learn, you know, when you can express with clarity things that will help your students and put that down in a book, you will understand the situation much better because you have studied that spot for hours and hours and looked at it from every angle. Um, so, you know, it's a great way to learn your fundamentals. Yeah. I'm nodding aggressively here. I mean, <laughs> teaching stuff is like one of the best ways to make sure, you know, cause if, cause if you don't really know something and you try to teach it, you're going to find out very quickly that you don't know it. And so, you'll have to work on whatever your own weaknesses are and you will, you will learn it more thoroughly by the time you're done teaching. Yeah. Coaching and teaching and writing, they're just different skill sets than playing poker. And it, it's, it's a, they're beasts in their own right. I have not written a book yet, but that's mostly because like I said, my brain would just explode <laughs> thinking about the project um, from the outset. You've heard me talk early and often about how improving your awareness while you're playing cards so that you make better decisions in the moment and notice trouble spots that merit deeper consideration is one of the most valuable things you can do to make more money on the felt. In my conversation with the only four-time WPT main event champion ever, Darren Elias, he told me that his ability to shut out all of the distractions in the world and fully focus on making great decision after great decision is his superpower he most attributes to his success. And you cannot improve your awareness at the tables without being fully present. When you learn how to stay fully in the moment on the green felt, you can finally have a clear path to becoming the absolute best version of yourself, which leads me to Jason Sue. Jason is one of the foremost authorities on the planet when it comes to playing poker with presence. As a matter of fact, he even wrote the book on it. Here's a direct quote from Nick Howard at Poker Detox on Jason's ability to help you stay focused. Quote, Jason's work is a new paradigm in poker and performance. End quote. And these aren't just empty words. 
Nick has put his money where his mouth is by hiring Jason to coach up the Poker Detox crew. And as a loyal listener of Chasing Poker Greatness, you know by now that I would not be promoting anything I didn't 100% believe would improve your poker skills and your life. So if you want to master your emotions and perform at your peak with presence while doing battle in the arena, you'd be doing yourself a grave disservice if you didn't check out Jason's work at PokerWithPresence.com. One final time, that's PokerWithPresence.com. So this may be a silly question considering how this conversation has gone, but uh, when you think about joy in your career playing cards, what's the first memory that comes to mind? Um, that's actually pretty easy in turn for me, which is my, there's nothing like winning your first world series of poker bracelet. Um, the, the WPT event that we talked about before, obviously it was a huge amount of money, but as we also talked about, there were so many different emotions and nerves and fear tangled up in it that joy actually didn't enter the equation too often. I was so stressful. Uh, and, and, and in the end, as a poker player, I had to be disappointed because of the way that I went out, even though the result was obviously great. You still, you, you much rather would go out in a play that you're happy with than in a play that was like your brain exploded. Tell me the play. Um, Let's uh, like, I, well, it's not, I, we, well, the we, problem, the problem is, like I said, my brain actually stopped working. So what does that um, mean? It stopped yeah, I'm, working. I'll tell you, I will okay, tell yeah. you. Um, I, well, to give you full context, and this is spoiler alert for my, for my first book, but that's fine. I mean, the book came out 15 years ago. I think we can have spoilers. At that point. <laughs> um, back then, this was the beginning of like the TV poker era. And so people were used to like the crazy TV personalities yelling and screaming and, you know, calling someone names or like in some way being, being entertaining for television. But when you threw a bunch of professionals, like non TV professionals, like we all were at the table, there wasn't any of that. We were just kind of being poker players silently trying to focus. And so at various times, the producers came out and they were like, guys, guys, you got to keep, you got to talk, talk more and try to make it more exciting for television or whatever. Oh my and God. to me, this was like really nerve wracking and stressful. Like, really? I have to do this now too? You want me to perform? I'm trying to play, which was stupid. I should have just ignored them, which is what Martin Hassan did. They're like, yeah, 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 whatever. Um, because they can't make you talk. Like, they can't make you do anything. But I was too inexperienced and too nervous to like think that way. And I was like, oh my God, now it's just one more thing I have to do. It's not necessarily an excuse for, for what happened, but it's, it's definitely part of the context for what happened. Okay. so. I look down at my cards on the buttons. We're, again, we're three-handed. I have ace-five offsuit. The blinds are 80-160. And I say 500 straight. I've never said 500 straight in my life before <laughs> this. I've never said straight, like, to, like, as, but I was trying to be good TV. And uh-huh. so that's what I did, whatever. But, again, I'm not an excuse, but just to give you a sense of, like, how out of my own self I was at this point. Yeah, you're, like, like, watching yourself from above. I'm, like, trying to perform this this persona for – I have no – I don't even know what reason. Like, I don't know if there's actually going to be a benefit to me to being good television or what. But, anyway, that's what I say. Hassan folds, Martin calls in the big blind. The flop comes down, and I believe it was – I might get the order of which cards came when wrong, but I I believe the flop comes down – Jack nine deuce, I want to say. It might, I might be slightly off on some of those cards, but it was definitely jack high. I definitely have no pair, no draw, ace high. Okay. Martin checks. I check back. Okay, fine. Uh, the turn is a 10. So the board is jack 10, nine, 
deuce. And now Martin bets out. And my brain says to me, okay, well, now you have an open-ended straight draw with your ace eight. And you should semi-bluff all in here with an open-ender and overcard because Martin will be leading out this turn a lot of times. You don't have to tell me this is a terrible play even with ace eight. Like, I know this now. But this is what my brain was telling me then. So I shove in. Martin snap calls with King Jack. And I kind of like shrug my shoulders and turn my hand over. And I'm pretty surprised to see that I do not have the ace eight, but I have the same ace five that was there the first time I looked at my card. Oh no. So now I'm drawing to three outs. And of course I don't hit them instead of the, like however many outs I thought I was drawing to. Now to be fair, if I'd had ace eight, I wouldn't have had that many more outs because my queen would have been no good. But um, still, I, if I had known, if I had remembered and I've never, by the way, this has never happened to me again. And, and did not have never happened to me before then. I've never in my life forgotten what I've had except for this one hand. If I had known correctly that I had ace five, I just would have folded. And I would have been by far the shortest stack three-handed and probably come in third anyway. But it was so disappointing to like not make a poker play to bust, just have like my brain die at the at this very stressful moment. Um, you know, in the end, I obviously found comfort in the seven hundred thousand dollars I won, and also comfort in that like. I would have had the fewest chips being the worst player and the most nervous, even if I had played it correctly. Um, so it was, it was not that hard to get over it. And I don't really think about this very often anymore. Now, like once a year, I'll be like, Oh yeah. Remember when I did that? Oh, well. Um, <laughs> but at the time it was like, as a poker player, you just want to have a play that you go out on that like makes sense. You don't want to have this happen. So anyway, <laughs> that's but- the story of how I busted the WPT championship in 2004. Um, how did we get on this? We were talking about something else. Oh yeah, joy. So there was no joy really from this and from a poker standpoint. There now, was absolute, I, now it makes sense. Yes. <laughs> now it makes sense. There was absolutely joy in 2010 when I won my first bracelet for, for so many reasons. Um, the most obvious is I've been trying to win a bracelet since I got into poker seriously uh, in 1999. And certainly since I became a semi-pro in 2003 and I've been making trips to WSOP and I had a bunch of final tables and a bunch of deep runs up to that point, but never, uh, never coming in first. Um, in 2008, I had a, a run where um, the last three tournaments I played, it was one of those 2000 player fields, $1,500 events. I made it to like 30th and took a bad beat and like immediately registered for the next one or started the next morning. I got to the final table of that 2000 person event um, got it in with like ace queen against ace nine suited and lost and came in sixth, and then immediately registered for the main event, which was starting in a couple of days. I was complete. I was like sick as a dog, but after day one of the main event, cause I was just playing, like I had just been playing those super long days of those two, 2000 uh, person events. And then immediately jumping into the main, cause there was only one day left to buy in and um, played day one, sat in my friend, Russell Rosenblum's guest room bed, sick as a dog for the next two days um emerged and then made a run in that main event which had like six thousand people in or something and came in 77 so i had this like two two years earlier i had this massive run of like pretty deep safely in the top one percent of the field results um and honestly with nothing to show for it i made good money on those but but they're heartbreaking like not a bracelet yeah and so i had a lot of runs like that yeah and so to finally break through um to win a bracelet and at, at the time the timing of it was very joyful as well i was celebrating my first winning anniversary like a couple of days after that and um we had we still had online poker at the time and so there was like 
I mean, I guess in hindsight, that seems more joyful than it was then because I didn't know that it was that online poker was yeah. going crashing down a year later. But but still, it was when you when you ask what's my most joyful moment in poker, definitely, definitely, it's winning the first bracelet. Yeah, I could see that. It's I don't know how tournament guys do it to be honest because it is like so it feels so soul crushing to play like a four day event and get thirtieth and then like reg the next one and go play four more days and get like. 18th it's like oh my god like you have to be made of something superhuman to just continue doing that day after day after day so i can imagine you know the joy of finally binking it is yeah totally it's funny you say that because during that run in 2008 when i had been playing that that first event for two full days and come in 30th i just went to the cat to the register to the to the cage and said buy me in for tomorrow please and i i didn't even ask what it was (laughs) <laughs> I thought that tomorrow was a limit event and I was excited if like, okay, this will be so much better. There'll be like 400 people in the field. I'll be playing limit hold and be less stressful. I won't have to worry about anything. It'll be great. And so I get to the Rio the next day and take my seat and I see that it's not a limit event. It's another one of these 2000 person. <laughs> and I'm so upset. I was like, Oh my God, I'm stuck in another one of these. This is awful. And it affected my play a bit because I was like, if I, any play that I saw, I was like, I'm going to try to bluff this guy. This guy does not have a strong hand. I'm, gonna, I'm playing this aggressively. And it really worked. And so sometimes when you have this attitude of you don't really care if you go broke or not, it can be really helpful for your game. You can, it's definitely possible to get carried away with it. But if you're smart about it and you pounce on every play that you see, like as soon as you see, as soon as you sense weakness, if it's, like, if it's rational, if it's based on something, if you're not just doing it blindly. If you say, if you, if you have a real reason for sensing weakness and you pounce on it every time, that's when you're in the zone in poker. And for, for that week in 2008, I was really in the zone. Every play that I saw, I made. They didn't always work, but they worked a lot. And um, I don't, I, there's no magic formula for getting into that zone every single time. And I, hopefully, you're, hopefully, if you're a good player, you're always playing a pretty strong game, if not your very, very best game. And again, you always need to have the cards help you out to some extent if you're going to make a run in the tournament. But, um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a grind, man. It, and there are a lot of times when you, are just busting every day, either for a long run or a short run. It doesn't matter. You're going to like find various ways to bust out and you're going to go 15 or 20 or more tournaments without doing anything. And it can be crazy making, but personally, when I know that I can only lose one buy-in at a time, that's easier for me than cash. Where like, if I lose six or seven cash sessions in a row, I feel like I've just gotten destroyed. Like what happened to me? I'm running so crazy bad. Whereas losing six or seven tournaments in a row or even 20, it's like, all right, like I kind of accept that a little. And I know the caching is kind of a rare thing anyway, but when in a cash game where you're expected, to, like the expectations that you're going to win money and you don't win over and over again, that, that eats at me a lot more personally. So it's everyone, it's always different. Um, I, I, I prefer tournaments, but I understand why some people don't. And, you know, none of it's easy, put it that way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, having low expectations is actually, you know, that's a great point. Kevin Rabichow, you know, we went through, he said he went through his database at one point because we were talking about like winning and losing days. And like he added up his winning sessions and his losing sessions and compared them to show his dad. And he won on 51% of days (laughs) as a cash game player, right? Yeah, it's Um, it's maddening. (laughs) So having low expectations of like, okay, like most likely I'll bust, which is hilarious. By the way, this story, you reg the wrong event and then you're like, fuck it. I don't care. I'm just going to play, take, you know, I'm going to, whatever I see, I'm going to pounce. And if I bust, I bust. 
And then you just run super deep again, which is, you know, pretty funny in its own right. Yeah, I actually yeah, ran ran deep and you know improved on the result from the last tournament, which is which is wild. Um, but yeah, and two thousand eight, the World Series poker was a bit different. I mean, there weren't a lot of like big buy-in events. And also, when I said tomorrow, and she said it was fifteen hundred, I said great. And she, I think that if she had said tomorrow is five thousand, I would have stopped and said, wait, what is it? But but yes, I mean, th- this was a time when when I would go out to Vegas, I was probably just like playing every tournament and hoping for the best. But but yeah, I mean that that cash game thing. Just to return to that for a second. 51% of sessions. That's, that means like, even if you're, if you're only running like kind of bad, you might lose, you know, seven or eight sessions out of 10. That's not even that crazy. And that, that's going to feel terrible. And so you're making me feel better because actually during pandemic cash games, uh, I've not, I've not, I've been running bad. And I've been I'm hearing this, this story from someone who does it a lot more than I do. Uh, is making me feel a bit better, honestly, but it's, it's funny how, um, as a cash game player, if you have a break-even run for a really long time, that feels horrible. It's like, oh my god, I've only broken even for two months. You feel like you've gotten crushed. Yeah, you do. And so with, with tournaments, it's not easy to, to, to go over a million, but yes, the expectation game is huge. Yeah, absolutely. And Kevin Rabichow, he's a crusher. Right. <laughs> you know, he's like he's like a crusher and is 51%, right? <laughs> so the, the opposite question is, when you think of pain in your poker career, what's the first memory? And by the way, maybe now... This might be another silly question because of the ace five hand. <laughs> it's hard to talk about that being pain. I mean, it was obviously a very painful way to bust, but it's also the most money I've ever won in poker was that tournament. So it's it's not pure pain. Um, what is the most pain? Um, well, the one that just popped into my head, and I don't. It's it's also a tournament that I did well in, but it's it feels kind of like similarly painful, which was a WPT event in Niagara. Also in 2008, I believe it might have been, it might have been 06 or 07, but I think it was 08. We we were seven handed, and as you know, um, the WPT final tables when they were televised used to be televised at six. So we were on the TV bubble of the WPT final table, and I there was a hand where I had Ace Jack in a. Was it Ace Jack or was it? No, I'm sorry. I was. I believe it was like. I believe it was Ace Queen. I might be slightly wrong. But I'm pretty sure I had Ace Queen, in a three bet pot. And this like really aggressive guy who like was an amateur player and didn't really know his hand values. The flop came down Ace Jack X, and he just he was the three better pre flop. And he just immediately, seemingly without even looking at the board, just shoved his shoved his stack in. Now, I should point out there was a dry side pot. So he's like shoving this huge stack into a dry side pot in a three-bet pot on an ace-jack-high board, almost a seam without looking at it. And I, he'd already done move like this with two pair. And I'm sitting there with ace-queen, and I'm like, did this guy even look at the board? And if he didn't look at the board, I have to call him. But – Come on, he must have looked at the board. This is a WPT seven-handed. Like, and if he did look at the board, why in the world would he be shoving here with, into a dry side pot on an ace-jack high board in a three-bet pot if he couldn't beat ace-queen? Like, what could he even have? Right. And so I went through this, this, you know, in my head, and I ended up folding. And this guy has two nines, and the other all-in guy has two fives. And he, like, wins this whole pot. And... I like could have called off here and I had a huge stack and easily made the final six have been a threat. And then a few hands later, 
I busted to my good friend, uh, Gavin Smith, rest in peace. Um, and Gavin, who was like one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, but would never lie to you about how you played a hand was like, you should have called him that ace queen. Absolutely. You should have called him there. And then I busted to Gavin on a like top pair, top pair kind of cooler situation where the stacks were short enough at that point that there wasn't much I could do, but he had me like crush the whole way, which didn't feel good either. And so talking about pain, like to be able to play a televised final table with Gavin, who was, who was, as I said, a very good friend of mine um, and someone who I had known at that point, even for years and who um, it just would have been such a great, even if I, wherever place I would have come in, it would have been so fun to, to have that memory, especially now that Gavin's no longer with us, to be able to play that six-handed WPT final table with Gavin and, and to be able to talk about it with him for the rest of our lives. And of course, to win more money than I would have gotten for seven. So again, it's a tournament where I did well. Seventh place in WPT is, is a finish you're never going to sneeze at. But the pain of how I busted and what could have been for that tournament, that's the first thing that popped into my head when you asked me, what's my, what's my memory of pain? Over? Yeah, that's pretty painful. Yeah. Um, and for those of you listening, the reason why the opponent should not be bluffing into a dry side pot is because there's value in somebody busting. So like, you don't want to just, you, you want to bust a player out. That is the goal at, uh, to get to the WPT final table, especially so that, you know, you get TV time, all these things. So yeah, that's, that's a pretty brutal one, man. I, I don't know that I actually fault you for folding the ace queen. I wasn't there of course. So I don't know the dynamic and, or the situation, but like if you, from a purely analytical perspective, not seeing anybody do anything, you would say like, okay, yeah, this is a pretty reasonable fold. I think without the read, it's a pretty reasonable fold, but like sitting there, I swear this guy never looked at the board and it's clear that he didn't, by the way, seeing, seeing what he had. So it's just like, it's, it's kind of a standard read, which is that if someone acts super quickly, it's very unlikely they're value betting. Cause if yep. you're value betting, don't you have to think about how much you want to bet? Don't you have to think about the best way you're going to extract value from the hand? Like, don't, don't you have considerations like that? Whereas if you're bluffing, a lot of times you don't care. You're just like, yeah, just get it in. Let's see what happens. And so the super quick bet, especially among non-professionals, is very often not a value bet. And so Absolutely. Yep. I should, have, I should have been married. I should have been stronger with that read. I think, but again, it's a very, it's a very tricky spot because yeah, it's, it's hindsight not a spot, bias not a spot a... where, I mean, how many times as tournament players have we been in a spot where you can bust someone three handed and it just goes check, 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 check. It's like, it happens way more often than it should, to be honest with you, because as you're saying, like this guy had two nines, let's say that I fold my ace queen like I did. And the other guy randomly has like Jack 10 or something like that and paired his Jack. Well, now you've, You've stopped it. You've, you've, you've not only not won the pot yourself, but you've eliminated, you've, you've not eliminated the other player. And so you could have moved up like real money. It was probably like 20 or 30,000 pay jump from seven to six. I don't know exactly what it was, but it was definitely significant. And, you know, you could have just checked and you could also gotten real money. So you could also screw yourself out of being at a WPT final table, yes, right? Exactly. Like you could yes. just. He, he could double up and then you could bust out and then you're like, oh my God, what happened? Right? Also, by the way, I could have called him and he really would have been in trouble. So that's true. Um, so yeah, it's just, it doesn't, it's a play that you do not see from tournament regulars hardly ever. And so, yes, it's, it, you can't really fault me too much for folding there because it sure, it sure looks like this guy just has to have it. But on the other hand, how can he have it? <laughs> right. Mean, like, who's going to have it and just shove there? It doesn't make any sense. So I probably should have called. Yeah, it's... Um... 
in cash games especially, it, it gets trickier when it's like reg versus uh, fish. Like right. I think regs, especially in cash game, for a long time, and I'm just giving this away for free, but for a long time, regs and like the small blind, whenever you would like raise the cutoff and they would delay like four or five seconds and mm-hmm. then three bet, they would get four bet out of their socks by me, <laughs> like just consistently because it's like a three better fold spot and the ranges are so ironed out that like if they have aces, right? There's no thought. It's like, Oh yeah, of course I'm three betting aces. If I have Kings or ace King or Queens, you're just like, it's like auto. But then when they would delay, it's like, they're looking at my stats and they're like, Hmm, should I be three betting this ace jack off? Should I be three betting this seven, eight suited? So it was more indicative of like a marginal hand. But when you have wrecks that take like really quick instant actions, like you said, if he flops a set, you're going to think, uh, should I bet here? Should I check? Should I, you know, how do I maximize value? You're not just going to go poop, put it all in. Same thing with ace king for sure. The only hand I was like convincing myself he had was ace jack for two pair, which is like, okay, whatever. I'm just going to shove it in. I'm not going to, I just want to protect the hand. And the, and the reason I was like tricked myself into making that read is that he had done a very similar play with two pair and shown it earlier. Right. Yeah. It was, it was, it was tricky, but that's funny that you say that about, about regs acting instantly with their hands they know they're supposed to three bet with, but not with the other ones. That, that's really funny that they would actually do that because, I mean, in tournaments, if I have three aces and I want a three bet, I'm never doing it instantly. I like I'm always thinking about it. Okay, what's the stack sizes? What does my three bet range look like? If I if I three bet with these aces, like what am I going to you know? What's the plan going forward? Like it, it I definitely have to think about it. Here's a question though: How many tournaments are you playing at a time? These guys are probably playing like 12 tables at once, you know? Yes. That's really, that's really interesting timing. Tell that's uh, having never been a, a, never been a no limit cash grinder. Really. I didn't know about that one. That's a good one. It is. It it made me a lot of money over the years. So little couple lightning round questions here for Mm -hmm. you, and then we'll, we'll get it done. And I'm going to go jump in the pool or something. My God, I'm sweating (laughs) through my clothes. So sorry. Um, (laughs) What's some common poker advice you hear that you completely disagree with? common poker advice that I hear that I completely disagree with. I guess the one that would uh, come to mind in terms of tournaments is that a lot of people like to talk about ICM. And for those who don't know, ICM stands for independent chip model. And it's a way for trying to value your stack size at a final table, taking into account the pay structure, taking into account that just by surviving longer while someone else busts, you can make some more real money. I don't really have any problems with ICM as a model where my, where I take issue with it is I think people use it as an excuse to play much tighter than they're supposed to at a final table. So ICM exists. And what it often means in practice is that if someone shoves on you, you need a stronger hand to call than you would ordinarily in like earlier in the tournament. And that's, that's fine. That's all well and good, but people often miss the second half of that, of what it implies, which is that, you can raise a lot lighter if they need a much stronger hand to call you. And people use ICM as an excuse, like, oh, ICM, I have to fold every hand now. No, you don't. ICM, you can you can pressure the all the other stacks and no one wants to bust. And you can go from like seventh place to third without even showing a hand ever because you can, you, aggression is properly being um, respected at a, at a tournament final table. So, I love that. That's a yeah, greatness so, bomb. So my, 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 my thing is that like, Yes, ICM matters. You should learn it, but you should learn it the right way. You shouldn't take the wrong lessons from it. 
Yeah, because it works both ways, right? If you can't call, then they're not supposed to call either. So right. knowing how to apply the pressure at the right time is is just something that, you know, this is a, this it's not exactly parallel, but I have these same feelings with a lot of the people who like randomize decisions in, in tournaments, like near the end. I, I've seen it with like some prominent streamers like, ah, oh, this decision is going to be a randomized. They click a button and they're like, okay, well, <laughs> raise. And I'm like, Basically, what you're doing is you're removing the res- you're, you're removing the responsibility from yourself to this thing that that you know you you don't have control over, and then you can say, well, if I bust, you know, it's not really my fault because the randomizer told me to do it, and so I'm randomizing. And it's like just such a misuse of a thing. Like unless you're playing a super high roller and you have like mixed strategy that is very close and you just don't want to be predictable. So you want to randomize this decision because it's necessary. Then you use a randomizer for almost every other use case, (laughs) throw the randomizer out the door. Like, what are you doing? Don't do that. Uh, That's hysterical. I got to say, I'm I'm a random decision, but I've never in my life said, all right, I'm going to turn on the randomizer now. Like if it's that close, can't you like think of enough factors that will like sway you one way or another for this particular spot? Like, are you, is it really so random? And then the other half of that is, okay, you want to randomize. How are you doing it? Are you, are these guys like looking at a clock on their computer or are they just like clicking a button? Because if they're just clicking a button, I got news for you. That's not random. Like your brain is decided for one reason or like for reasons maybe unknown to you, but you've somehow made a decision. Even if you think it's random, it's probably not. So no, they use like random.org. And okay, like, well, if they're doing that, then that's truly random. But yeah. still, I mean, it's like, I don't know. A lot of times I bet they think they're being random when they're not. And are they really always going with random.org? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, but to me, it's like you can use your skills to. Yeah. If you're it's that close. You can like take into account the very small factors that usually you might not take into account, but maybe in this time you do. Maybe it's like the big blind is slightly tighter or looser or like there's, you know, the stack sizes behind you are more or less likely to shove or whatever. And like you find a reason to, to play it either full or direct. You don't just like, in my opinion i mean i'm not saying again i don't have like a i don't think it's like terrible to do this but i've i've never done that and getting back to the icm thing as you say like they shouldn't be calling you either well at some point though it does become a game of chicken because if if you're if you're gonna let me raise all the time at some point someone has to be like i'm gonna cut off my nose despite my face because like at some point you might have to call even if it's slightly negative ev just to stop this metagame thing from happening and so Actually, the, I made a final table of this online World Series of Poker in Potlum in Omaha, and my bust-out hand was kind of like this game of chicken thing in a way, which is that I had a very strong PLO hand, which was king-king, 10-9, double-suited. And I raised and got called, and one of the other bigger stacks, and this is this online World Series of Poker, so no one had that many chips. But one of the other guys who had, like, some chips, three bets squeezed, and I had enough chips to, like, shove, but... He's of course going to be getting like he's never. I have no fold equity. I have like twenty four blinds or something. Now King King ten nine double suited is like a top two two and a half or three percent PLO hand. So from that standpoint, like it's not really reasonable to fold this hand to a raise. Otherwise, I'm like always almost always folding to the three strategy standpoint. On the other hand, doesn't this guy have aces like every time? And aren't I like flipping now? Like I'm not that I'm not in that bad shape against aces, but I'm still behind. And do I really want to get in my chips behind in a final table spot where I can win real money by moving up? Well. Because I'm me, I couldn't bring myself to full King King 10 9 double suited, and that's how I busted. But it does, it's like part of that game of chicken thing. It's like, well, 
if I'm literally only going to call the three bet or get involved with my stack with two aces, then these guys, then someone's going to just shut every time. So like I have to pick one other hand to do it with, and this would be the one, this is like the best non-aces hand you can have more than one. So the, those things, those things will happen. And they can happen even more in PLO, uh, honestly. And so I don't fault people for sometimes making these, again, these ICM negative decisions where it's like, they just had to stop the guy from, from running over the table. Yeah. I mean, back in my party booger sit and go days in like 2005 at the two hundreds, it's like there's four people left and you're the big stack and it's like you just raise and keep yep. raising and like whenever like the big blind or whenever there's pressure you can fold just so that you keep the game going <laughs> just so like this short stack can fold and then the small blind will fold and then you just keep, get to keep raising and raising and accumulating chips and then by the time somebody finally busts it's like oh i have 95 percent of the chips so right. i'm just going to you know win this 90 you know, a super high percentage of the time. And it's like, you have to exploit that. I mean, you have to take advantage of people having to fold. That that spot in particular was crazy back in those sit and goes where the the pay structure is 50%, 30%, 20%. Right. Yeah. 60% of the, of the prize pool is going to be awarded from the next bust out basically. And the pay jump from fourth to third is, is as big as any of the pay jumps ever. Like the next one is going to be you know, 10% and then, and then the heads up pay jump is the same as this one. So like, it's a massive bubble from, you know, relatively speaking. And yeah, you're crazy if, you, if you're the chip leader and don't take advantage of it. And, you know, the, the same is somewhat true in any bubble spot, but that one, that one was crazy. Yeah. I love those bubble spots. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hated being in the other position <laughs> where terrible, terrible. Z Justin is just like jamming it in my face. Every hand is like, Oh my God, dude, <laughs> chill out. So if you could gift all poker players one book, what would it be and why? Wow. Gift all poker players one book. What would it be? That's a, that's a, that's a good one. I have to think about this a little bit. Well, you know, selfishly, I would say my book, the game plan, but if I, if you want a more serious answer uh, to your question, I mean, maybe it's just because it's the last poker book I read, but I really think it's going to be a classic in literature, but Maria Konnikova's new book, The Biggest Bluff, it's just such a smart book. And it's not going to be, it's not a pure strategy, but I don't think there is like a pure strategy book that every poker player should read. But if every poker player wants to get a sense of the kinds of, dis, the, the kinds of work you need to do on your own decision-making process in poker and all the various factors that are in play in terms of becoming a poker player and how to make yourself, rid yourself of some of the, biases you may bring, whether it's your own emotional makeup at the table or your own biases and reasoning. Marie does an amazing job in like delving into all that stuff and going to the experts and very thoroughly researched, but also applied to her own poker game. And, you know, the conversations with Eric Seidel that that are throughout the book are fascinating. And she also talks to Ike Haxton and Lucky Chewy and other people and all their thoughts are really interesting. It's just... I can't imagine any anyone who plays poker seriously who will not get something out of and enjoy Maria's book. And so I think that would be my my choice right now. Again, if I had to pick the one book that will make you a, a, a better player, eh, I don't know what I would pick. Maybe it's still that one. I don't know. But certainly, if, if you certainly, I think this is the book that I think every poker player who likes to read should be reading. Absolutely. Had Maria on the show and we talked about it and, you know, I had an advanced copy and read it and just couldn't put it down. I mean, it was, it was so good. And this is from a person 
who does not always love reading poker books. Like I, I do not, I, I'm adversarial with poker books. It's like, oh, okay, whatever. Um, but this book is a great story. Her journey is like totally unique in the poker world. I would, I, I think I can say that. So yeah, I love The Biggest Bluff and definitely a worthy book that pretty much everybody listening should read. Yeah, I'm with you on being adversarial toward poker books. Like there's, I mean, I, I, I read Maria's book coming into it very skeptical that I w- would enjoy it because I've read so many of these books and so many of them have been so well done at this point. There are the classics like the Alvarez and um, Tony Holden books that came out a long, long time ago. And then Jim McManus and Colson Whitehead more recently tried to do things that were similar. And so Katie Letterer had the book a long time ago. There's so many of these books. I, I tried to write a similar <laughs> book. And so I'm, I've kind of like had my fill of them. I was really not sure I was going to want to read another one, but I of course did buy the book to support Maria. And then I'm so glad I did because it's such a great book. And so this, I am like you, I'm, I'm not the kind of person who is going to just promote whatever poker book is out. That's not me at all. I'm the opposite of that. So the fact that I like this book at all, let alone that I loved it should really, really speaks volumes how great a book it is. Yeah. There's only a few books that I think I've just loved a few poker books, you know, the banker, the Professor and the Suicide King. I love that story. I thought it was just a great story. And um, I really loved Gus Hansen's Every Hand Revealed because it was kind of unique. Um, it was just a unique format that I enjoyed reading his thoughts. I read Every Hand Revealed so many times when it first came out because Gus was like playing a different game at the time. And just he to like get his thought process and seeing how he played, it was like that That book, I mean, I, that, I, I made money from that book for sure. Like that that book, got me thinking about poker in different ways. I didn't always play like us did, who would? But like just seeing what he was doing and the way his brain worked and we just, we just hadn't seen someone like talk about all their hands before. Like I, I loved that book when it came out and I, I read it multiple times and I still have it. And I'm sure a lot of the poker advice is not as meaningful anymore, but I bet the thought process still is. I bet it is too. And like, I remember watching him like on TV back when there was tons of poker shows, like carrying around his little micro cassette recorder, talking Mm -hmm. into it and being like, what is he doing? And then like he releases the book and it's like, oh, okay, I guess it, I guess he just carried around with him to every tournament until he eventually won one, which that's pretty impressive just in and of itself. Right. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I also saw him doing that. I was like, what is, what is Gus doing over there? Who's he talking to? Oh, whatever. But yeah, I mean, he, I, I think Gus probably doesn't get enough credit for how strong a player he was. Because, he doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, he, he's, you know, he was one of those, you know, did better in tournaments, sure, than in, than in cash games. But he was a, you know, the 0405, era, I guess it was. Man, he was, he was amazing. And just, there's still lines from the book that, that strike me. I remember when he had like two fives, and there was a, a raise and a call or something in front of him. And he writes... I hate trying to flop a set when I don't have to. And he just three bets and they all fall or something. And it's like, holy crap. <laughs> I never thought about this before. Yeah. But like he just knows they're going to fold. He doesn't care that he has equity in flopping a set. He wants to just win the pot. And like, it doesn't mean that I always three bet with five now, far from it. But like, just, just thinking about the plays that are available to you as a poker player, just, just kind of thinking about plays that other Gus would do things other people wouldn't even consider doing. And that's, yeah, that's, that's, such, a, that's, that's such an amazing attribute of poker player. Joe Tehan is another guy who like to get himself in spots that people are you know, getting fun of a lot because like, how can he have that? He has Jack Deuce, but like, that's kind of the point. He'll do things that no one else would be, people think it's not even an option to do stuff that he does, but that's, that's something that um, 
I forget which poker player said it first, and I'm sorry that I can't quote them accurately here, but it might have been Jason Strasser, who who once told me that, you know, you have more options at the table than you think you have. Like you might think you can't raise to a quarter of your stack and fold to a three bet. But guess what? There are times when you can't, or you might you might not think you can bet half your stack and then fold it. Like whatever it is, maybe you shouldn't do it, but you have more options than you think. There are there are time and place for lots of different places at the poker table. And very occasionally you're going to think of one that you've never done before and realize, wait a minute, this actually makes sense. So it's it's important as a player to open yourself up to those ideas, I think. Yeah, it's uh it's like looking at a logic problem and the term is fixedness where you just see a limited number of options available. You're not seeing every, the whole big picture. You just fixate on you know, what you think are the available options. And Gus was one that he, he would call all in when he felt like he was getting the right equity. With like, I remember he busted Freddie Deeb with Queen 10 off. They got it in. Um, Freddie had Ace King. And like, they interviewed Freddie at, after WPT. And Freddie was just like, he just said, yeah, I wish I could play every day against this guy He's calling me with the queen 10. Like he's horrible. He's garbage. And like looking back at it in retrospect, it's just so hilarious to think that like Gus was just so far ahead of everybody else that he was basically crushing them and they didn't even realize what was happening. Yeah. It's amazing that that concept took so long to actually make sense to people. But in, in my WPT run in 2004, I opened with seven, five suited and someone shoved on me and I was getting two and a half to one. So I shrugged my shoulders and called and people thought I was like out of my mind. But of course <laughs> yeah. I beat the ace jack offsuit and busted the player. And like, this kid doesn't know what he's doing. Well, no, actually you're supposed to call getting two and a half to one, the seven, five suited. And people just didn't know that then. Like they just, it just was, they didn't think about it that way. They, they didn't, they didn't have the numerical reasoning in place yet in 2004. At least a lot of people didn't. Some people did, yeah. but not. Well, Gus came from the backgammon background too. Yes. A lot of math. And so that probably helped him tremendously when transitioning to poker. So a few more questions. What's your current big goal right now? Current big goal? Um, well, outside of poker, my big goal is to publish a novel, which I hope to do someday. I don't want to put a time limit on it because I've been working on writing fiction my entire life. But I would, you know, I'm hoping to be pitching a novel to the publishing world relatively soon. And I would love to have that go somewhere. In terms of poker, um, yeah, I don't know what the big goal is anymore. I'd love to win another bracelet, but right now the idea of even playing an in-person World Series event is uh, so far away that it's hard to like picture it as a goal. But right. I, I guess I guess I'd like to write another poker book as well. That and that's that's something I do plan on doing. And I've kind of already, as part of like reviewing my hands from these online World Series events, I've and using them with students. I'm kind of like, oh, you know what? There might be material here that I can turn into something. And so. Um, yeah, my big goals right now, I guess, are writing goals from, from this point in my life. Nice. Whenever you get the novel or your poker book, either one, come to me. <laughs> I have no problem talking about a novel because I love novels too. Like I love, I love fiction. Do you have any projects you're working on that are near and dear to your heart? Projects that are near and dear to my heart. I think we've, we've talked about a few of them, uh, my, my writing projects and um, just my like poker improvement project my other my other hobbies um which are both well they're in various states of pause right now because of the pandemic but my other two hobbies one of them is chess which i used to love playing in person at the marshall chess club but luckily chess is one of the things that can survive to some extent online through the pandemic and so i'm not a great chess player but i'm not a bad chess player either um and 
you know, I try to work on my chess game. I don't spend as much time on improvement as I used to. And so that means my, I'm improving kind of slowly right now, but chess is kind of fun in that, um, you don't have the, the variance of poker. So like for better or for worse, when you lose a game, it's almost always your fault. And when you win, it's, you know, either the other person messed up or you didn't. And so that, and that's, that's kind of nice too, but also chess rewards study and improvement uh, and, and, and your own um, skill level more than poker does. Like in poker, you might actually be playing a lot better, but get it, be getting crushed because the results are not always going to cooperate in chess. The results track your progress. So that that's kind of nice too. Yeah. It's much more tangible. Yes. Yeah. My other hobby is community theater, which I love to death. And I, I've been in a couple community theater, a couple shows locally, but that's, that's on hold for the foreseeable future because of the pan theater is like the last thing that's going to come back. But I do, I love just like being someone else for a few hours. It's um, it's really a thrill. And I love the people I meet there. Why, just, why do you like, love it? Why do you love being somebody else for a few hours? Um, it's, it's mostly just the thrill of performance. It's like when you get the reaction from an audience or even from a fellow performer and you're kind of like, it's sort of like similar to being in the zone in poker. If you're in the zone as a performer, you really, you, you have this sense of, I, don't, I hate the word control in poker, especially because you you're, you have so little control in poker. And the, the faster you accept that, usually the better you are as a player. But having said that, in terms of acting, like to feel like the audience is really, or their other performers are responding to like the tiniest nuance of what you're doing. If you're, if you're hitting your, if you if you're trying a line a different way than you've ever tried it before. And all of a sudden you found the right emphasis or you found the right tone to strike, or you found something in your character that makes people laugh or gasp that they hadn't before. All that's just like a supremely satisfying to me. Um, and so it's a lot of work but it's worth it for those moments. And also just being around with other like people who love to tell stories and to, to be, to perform and to get in the zone with you and kind of feed off the stuff you're giving them is just really, it's a thrill. And I, I mean, it's almost hard to describe if you, if you're not someone who's into that stuff and if you're not a theater person, but um, hopefully I've done it some justice so people understand why I like it so much. You've made me want to dabble in the theater. If awesome. that, if that means anything. Um, you should so look, look for a new, look for a community theater near you. And when, you know, when, however, many, however long from now theater yeah. comes back, you can try to do it. Yeah. Awesome, man. Um, it's been great having you on. Oh, I do have one question. And this is not going to happen anytime soon for all the reasons we've said, but uh, if you could put up a billboard for folks who are driving to the card room, to the casino, what would it say? <laughs> a billboard. Wow. Um, well, the billboards I always see are the ones advertising some other casino. Like when you're on your way out, or, <laughs> right. like next time play at this other place, which was, was very smart. Um, but what would I say to, what would I put on the billboard? I feel like I could interpret this question um, a bunch of different ways, but I, I would say. Um, always look at your cards. Yeah, like right, definitely. <laughs> well, I always remember them. I always remember your um, cards. I would say something like, you know, poker is a game of skill mostly partially because it seems like that's a, a point we still have to argue among some people, which is super annoying. And so like Absurd. reminding everyone that it's, mm-hmm. that that's true is helpful. But also I think a lot of people who are coming to the casino, especially casual players don't know that poker is actually a game that you can think about and like use your brain and your, you know, people skills or whatever and take part. And they think it's, a lot of people think it's just like, what are you going to do today? Slots, poker, roulette. Eh, I'm just going to pick one. 
and they're, they're they're so wildly different to me that anyone would ever consider like doing one or the other. It's like, you know, they're just completely different universes of what you're doing with your time. And so I would want to like, maybe have a little wake up call for the people to get them into the poker room. Not because I'm looking to like take money off a of fish or whatever, but because I'm trying, I want to grow the game. And I think the more people that understand what poker is, which again, it's, it's amazing to me that even, even now we have to really labor to explain to so many people, like hearing some of the testimony from like, for example, the apostle hearings and what they have to like, painfully explained to even like the judge and that it's just like i listened to the i listened to the apostle hearing uh veronica sent me the link and i recorded it i unfortunately listened to it and (laughs) i just had it like a just a bad feeling in my stomach i was like this this is not going to end well it's just crazy the kind of stuff you have to explain to people and so just taking the step toward making that more understandable having having a better baseline for what poker is for everyone i think I think would help. I mean, the thing that always gets me about these like debates of game skill versus luck is that the, the thing they often use to say it's a game of skill is that they look, they have a, they have a bunch of hand histories and they say, look, the best hand barely ever won. Therefore it's a game of skill. It's like, you can have games of skill where the best hand always wins. There's the whole betting aspect. How are you, who's getting the most value out of their hands? Like the bluffing is yes, a great part of the game, but it's not, it's not the definitional it's not, the, it's not what makes the game by definition a game of skill. You can have plenty of games of skill that don't involve bluffing. Like, I just don't understand like the, why, well, it's why these really, concepts are so hard. You know? Yeah, it's really dumb. It's like saying that, you know, I lost at the slot machine because I didn't sit at the best slot machine. Like, <laughs> the best slot machine didn't win. It's, like, so absurd. If the best hand always won in poker, then you would just play the best hand every time. And, like, right. and that, there right. would and that, be And no that would skill. be a game of skill. Knowing, right. like, which one has the best odds to be the best hand, that would be a game. It would, it, wouldn't, it would be a simple skill, but it would still be a game of skill. So, like, and, there, and by the way, there would still be people that played it badly, even if right. it was, like, yeah, so. Yeah, it's, it's absurd. But um, that's another tangent for another day. Love yes. to have you back on the show, man. Uh, final question. Anybody wants coaching, wants to find your work, where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the World Wide Web? Sure. Well, my book, The Game Plan, is available from Amazon, so you should buy it there. Um, my website is mattnatros.com, M-A-T-T-M-A-T-R-O-S.com, and I'll post some writing stuff there or announcements or things like that. You can get on my mailing list through that through my website. Um, I'm on Twitter at matt underscore matros, M-A-T-T underscore M-A-T-R-O-S, and so I'll often talk about various things there. Um, like I did commentary with Dave Tuckman for a World Series final table, and that got announced there. I have a Twitch channel. My my Twitch channel is Jacks Up. That's probably not going to get used as much now that the online World Series is over, but I had some fun streaming those events. So basically, I'm on the internet. I'm, you know, I'm online. So yeah. you, you can find me without too much trouble. Uh, please check out the book, The Game Plan, if, if you're interested at all in anything I've said today. Yeah, all this will be on the show page too. So yep. link links on the show page straight through to all of Matt's work. Thank you very much once again for your time. Really loved it. This was great, Brad. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.